Thanks for checking out this message from City on a Hill Church International. For ways to connect and get involved in the life of our church, please go to our website, coah.co.za. Right, we'll do a bit of reading in a minute, but I just want to, uh, for us to catch up, a quick recap of chapter 2. As I said, it was quite a, quite a difficult chapter, um, all about judgment. Remember that Paul is building a case. He's like a lawyer. He's building a case against man, and he finds him, he finds him guilty. And, um, but that's, that's the bad news, and we'll, we'll get to the good news t- tonight. <laughs> and uh, the rest of Romans is just this wonderful unfolding of God's merciful plan of redemption. So chapter 2 is a lot about judgment, and he says, don't judge because you yourself will be judged. The Jews will be judged by the law, that's special revelation, and the Gentiles will be judged by conscience and uh, by the revelation they've got. Remember we said last week that God is a just God. He will never judge a person beyond what's been revealed to them. So he'll only judge you according to the light revealed to you, because he's a just God. Um, then we looked at this whole thing of don't, don't presume, because we all know the second part of that verse that says, the kindness of God leads to repentance. But the first part of that verse says, don't presume on his kindness. Don't, don't take his kindness for granted and think you can act like you want to. You remember that. And then by not repenting, Paul says, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And remember we saw that the day of wrath, the Jews knew very well about the day of wrath. It's that day when God steps into history and it's the day when he judges sin finally. And, and the Jews understood this day of wrath. And so Paul's saying, the more you don't repent, the more the judgments of God build up. And that's what's happening in the world now anyway. The judgments of God is building up. And we're building up to that day when the bowels in Revelation turn over and the wrath of God finally falls on this world in judgment. Um, we saw last week as well, we, we will all face judgment, Christians and unbelievers. And so there are two choices, tribulation for those who do evil, the Jew first and then the Gentile, and then glory and honor for those who do good, both Jew and Gentile. It's the hearers of the law that will be saved. And remember we spoke about circumcision, that for the Jew, circumcision was a mark of being in the covenant community. Interesting that the very first time that the gospel is preached at Pentecost, it says they were cut to the heart. So there's a cutting that takes place of the heart. And so Paul, understanding circumcision, talks about the circumcision of the heart. And we looked at that. A heart that is cut open and laid bare and cries out for God. So Paul's conclusion is that no one is righteous. So let's have a look in our Bibles to chapter 2. Sorry, 3. So Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is just the prophetic word of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their their faithlessness nullify faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written... And now he's referring to Old Testament scripture. 
that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in, human, in a human way. By no means. For then how, would, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now Paul goes into a lot of other Old Testament scriptures and he says, can you see that he's building this case? And, and, and here, here's the, the, the guiltiness of the whole thing. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. So he's talking about this privileged community. They've had special revelation. They've had the Lord. They've had the Word of God. They've had a revelation of God. He says, no, not at all. For, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that's all Old Testament scripture. Yeah, verse 13 is also Old Testament. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps uh, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's, he's quoted a whole lot of Old Testament scriptures. Verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held, uh, held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So let's just have a look at that and, and, and quickly go through that. So the Jews are not better off because even though they've been part of the covenant community, the judgment of God is for all people, and we're all going to come under God's judgment. They, of course, have the advantage because they've had a revelation of God. They've had God's word, and yet they've rejected him. So verse 10, no one is righteous. In other words, no one is right with God. Um, verse 12, all have turned aside. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul says, quoting Old Testament scripture, their throat is an open grave. In other words, um, their, what comes out is not righteousness. It's not life of God. It's the opposite. And verse 19, he says, the whole world is um, accountable to God. So Paul's conclusion he says, for by works of the law, in 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, so what Paul is saying um, in Romans, and he's speaking to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and he's saying, God has leveled the playing field. Even if you were a Jew, a part of God's covenant people, if you're not responding to God's law by faith, you are as bad off as the Gentile who doesn't know God. Okay. Um, the problem with the law, it reveals sin, but it can't deal with sin. 
And that's true today. That's why the law in the Christian life is so bad. Because the law stirs up sin. So you find when people get very legalistic, what happens, instead of behavior changing, it actually gets worse. The moment people start bringing the law, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you're looking for performance and not the, not the, 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 faith, the, the heart with faith. It actually stirs sin up. It, it, it achieves the opposite effect. And hopefully you'll see tonight this whole wonderful thing of, of what it means to become the righteousness of, of Christ. Now we, we, we turn. So let's, let's read some more scripture and then I'll go through that. So verse 21. We now come to the turning point, the first major turning point in Romans. Okay, And it starts in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember I said he's leveled the playing field. And are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's a big word, but I'm going to explain it in a minute. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We'll get to that as well. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So you'll see that not only is God a just God, and he's going to bring judgment, but the same God is the one who justifies, who brings mercy and gets us off the hook. And you'll see that tonight. Um, so then in verse 27, he says, So what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So, here's this amazing turning point. You remember we've spoken about how in Romans, when you come to a therefore, you need to see what it's there for and, and what's backed that up. And he comes to a turning point. He says, therefore, in light of what I've shared, like a mathematical equation, this is it. Now he comes to this point. He's, he's spoken about this judgment. He's spoken about the Jews and the law and the covenant and, and, and the dismal, the dismal um, situation of everyone who's not living by faith is, is going to be judged. But then he says, but now... The righteousness of God. Um, verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That means it's appeared apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So let's have a look at this. I like this, this little uh, sentence from um, Tim Keller. He says, Paul now turns from the black cloth of human sin to hold up the glittering diamond of the gospel. And from now on, you're going to just see. He's painted a, a, a very bleak picture. Shows how all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And um, now he brings this wonderful uh, diamond of this glorious gospel. Um, he says, but now this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So he's saying there is a very different kind of righteousness now. And, and you'll see why. Because this righteousness comes from heaven. Uh, as I said, this is the great turning point. In, in the Old Testament, righteousness came through the law. So if you obeyed the law, you did your sacrifices, you were counted as righteous. And every year, the, um, at Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, um, they would sacrifice uh, the animals, and the high priest would place the blood on the mercy seat, which we'll get to in a moment, and the wrath of God would be satisfied by looking at the blood, the sacrificial blood. The thing is that they had to do that every year, and so it was an imperfect system. Now, Paul says, the good news is the very righteousness of God has appeared. And as we'll see, it's, it's appeared through the one person, the Messiah, Jesus. Because he's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy. And now he says, but now, this perfect righteousness has appeared. And he's obviously, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And it's available to all those who through faith uh, in Christ, uh, receive that. So, Tim Keller says, so here we have uh, Paul summarizing the entire Bible. Paul's most essential summary of, of what he thinks the Bible is all about. And it's, it's the salvation that God has prepared for, for the world, to put the, the world right. And there are three phrases um, there are three phrases that, that um, are brought in the relationship with each other in different ways. Through these few verses, and they, they this, we are justified, and we're going to look at that in detail, by faith in the blood of Jesus. Those three things will go right through Romans, and you'll refer to them again and again. So what is Righteousness. Can I put you on the spot and ask, what do, you, what do you understand? You've heard it your whole Christian life. What do you, and it's not a trick question, by the way, because you'll see it's a very difficult word. In right standing with God. It's what? In right standing with God. It's right standing with God. Or should you say right living with God? Right living with God. Obedience. Obedience. Come on, guys, this side. More on that side, yes. Having the nature of God. Blameless. Okay, well now you're running ahead. <laughs> Good for you. 
Yeah, it's so difficult in English. I mean, I as a pastor for many years struggled to really pin this, this word down, righteousness. Okay. So most of what you said is right. Um, but now I want you to think of righteousness as validation. We'll go into that now. Okay. What does it mean to have validation? Validation is when you've got certain things that give that open a door for you. So let's take a very simple example. You go through schooling, you get matric, you've got a validation. Hopefully, you can now get a job. But in, but when you go for a job interview, the the the, um, the, the person interviewing you wants to see if you've got the goods, if you've got the right credentials. And if you've got the right credentials, he's going to open the door and say, I've got a job for you. The same as if you want to study further. You, you want to do a degree, so you get all your certificates together, and you go and present them to the, to the, to the university or the college or whatever. And if they are the right um, qualifications the door will open to you. Like I had a, an amazing thing in my 50s. So I, as you know, I was shocking at school and never got to matric, never got through standard mind anyway. Um, but then I landed up at university and I did the Bachelor of Theology, but I could only be awarded the diploma because I never had a matric. So I did exactly the same course as all my mates, but I couldn't get the degree, I got the diploma. Then in my 50s, because I was running the college, they wanted me to up my degree. So I took my diploma from Rhodes University. I took some technical certificates I'd done and some in-house training in the Methodist ministry, my exams from the in-house, put it all together, and I went and presented my case to the South African Theological Seminary. And they said, you can do your master's. So I went from a diploma in theology to a master's in theology. I was validated. You see, you see what I'm saying? It's like an access card. There's a lot of access cards these days. It's so nice, you just go and touch the door, and boom, it's open. So that's, that's what righteousness is. Okay, we've given you the examples of the job. Um, and, and let me just say, this is so crucial. Because to be validated is in the fabric of our being. When I'm at school, I want to be validated. I want to be seen as one of the cool guys. That's validation. I want to be accepted. And it never goes away from us, does it? And we, we, we want to find validation. We want to be accepted. And that's, that's the absolute crux um, of understanding righteousness. So, we, as we said, what are our credentials? What do I have to do? But now, what do I have to do to be accepted by God? Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. And... Um, that is why if you can grasp this in the spirit, you'll be so free. Because even us who've been along the Christian path for a long time, we still slip into this thing of finding validation with God. And you're going to see that in a moment. We've been validated. We've been totally accepted. And many Christians are not living 
in the good of that. Because when you live in the good of that, you're free and you are effective. And you're victorious. Because sadly, religion says to be accepted, here's all the rules. And you live by the rule book. And all you're doing is you, you're in a performance mode. You, you are wanting God to accept you. I mean, don't you do something every now and again that's really good? And you're like, think, oh, Dad, did you see that? You go, oh, that's wrong. But, but it's, it's there, isn't it? We, we want acceptance. And what Paul's going to show us is that we've been totally and completely accepted um, uh, in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the absolute essence um, of the gospel. And so you can begin to see why every religion has got a set of things to do to find favor with God. I mean, Daniel can tell us from his background, I'm sure. Different people can tell us, but every religion has got steps and things to do that make you acceptable to the God you're serving. Christians, sadly, do the same thing. Because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law. And now he's given us the law of the Spirit, and we'll learn a lot about that as we go, as we go on. But what do I have to do to be acceptable to God? If I, if I live a really good life, will God accept me? It's like, this is what we do with God. So just like we get all our certificates together to get this door open to do that, that, that degree, it's like we get all our moral good things together and say, oh God, look at this. This is what I did this week. You know, I blessed this person, I prayed um, three hours this week, I was into the Word, and what are we doing? We, we, we are building up um, some stuff that makes us more acceptable to God. God says you can do nothing to make yourself more acceptable. Nothing. And that's, as I said before, that's the scandal of the cross, is that Jesus has done everything. And this is the crux of what Paul's teaching us in Romans. So, the righteousness of God, it's perfect because we now have the perfect righteousness living amongst us, living the life, and then dying in our place. He's, he's the perfect, perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect Lamb of God. And this will unfold as we go on. It's personal because it comes directly through Jesus. The Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so it's highly personal. The law was very impersonal. You just gathered at the temple. The priest did all the work. You came in obedience. They did the sacrificing. You'd wash your hands and you'd go into the court and whatever. And the priest would do on your behalf. But now in Jesus, it's personal for every single one. The righteousness of God has been placed in one person, Jesus. And it's propitiatory. And I've purposely used that word, as I said to you, because in the, in the, the ESV, it speaks about um, propitiation. So let's quickly ask, what Bible have you got? Okay, what does it say there in that verse? Um, 
Oh, you've got propitiation in there. Yes, Daniel. Is that what yours says? Atonement? Anybody else? Okay, so all those versions are trying to explain what the word propitiation means, okay? <clears throat> and I'd like to try and explain it to you now. So in the Old Testament, you know that the temple is made of the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies, okay? So in the Holy of Holies, there's only the high priest who can go in once a year on behalf of the people to make atonement. Atonement means for the covering of sin. Atonement began in Eden. That's where it started. After Adam and Eve had fallen, what did God do? He clothed them with skins. He covered their nakedness. He atoned in the Garden of Eden. So, in the Old Testament system, the high priest would go in once a year to the Holy of Holies. Only he's allowed there. And inside the Holy of Holies, which is like a representation of the throne room of God, you would have the, the, um, the mercy seat. Um, and, and what he would do, he'd take the blood and apply it to the mercy seat. Because the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God. So remember that in the Old Testament... Everything is like physical and acted out in the physical. So God's presence is in a physical Ark of the Covenant. Wherever the Ark moves, the presence of God moves under that dispensation, under that era. So now you've got the Ark of the Covenant, and that's the presence of God, as it were, and you've got the mercy seat. And so the, the priest would come and he'd, he'd put the blood on the mercy seat. And the anger of God, when, when God sees the blood, his anger is turned away. And that's what propitiation means. It appeases the anger of God. And therefore, on behalf, the priest does this on behalf of all the people, and they are atoned for. Their sins are atoned for. And all they had to do was be there, bring the sacrifices, sorry, um, so, in propitiation, in this atonement, what was once the, uh, the, the blood of animals, we now have the blood of Jesus. And His blood is perfect. Because of the virgin birth, that line with Adam is completely destroyed. That's the importance of the virgin birth. And so that's why Paul says in Corinthians, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, that line has been broken already. When you put your faith in Him, a recreation takes place in our hearts and we are born again. We are new people. But Jesus did that first. In Him, that line was broken. When He died as the perfect substitute, that broke Adam's line. And the fact that he rose the third day confirmed the whole thing. So his righteousness is perfect. 
His sacrifice was perfect. As a substitute, it was the perfect substitute. An animal would be dragged to the slaughter and, and slaughtered and the blood would be put on the altar. It says Jesus went willingly. He wasn't dragged. He went of his own will. He was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And so we have this perfect Lamb of God, perfectly obedient, and he lays down his life. And here's the thing. Many years ago, you might have heard me say this, but many years ago I had a picture of Calvary. And the three crosses there was like lightning conductors. You know those lightning conductors outside the thatch houses? It absorbs the lightning, right? So, so Paul says, uh, uh, in Colossians, I think, he says, you by nature are objects of wrath. Just listen to that. You by nature are objects of wrath. What has Paul been talking about up to now? Wrath. He says, you guys are storing up wrath. You are stirring up God's anger because of your unrepentant hearts. So now, Jesus is, is on the cross, and it's this massive lightning conductor. And what happens? He becomes, he becomes the target of the wrath of God, the lightning of God. So when Jesus gets struck on the cross, he absorbs the full anger of God against sin. That was the picture I got. You could have been standing right next to the cross and nothing would have happened to you. Because Jesus absorbed on that mercy seat. So it's quite interesting. Where's the mercy seat? In this sense. My personal feeling, I feel Calvary is part of the mercy seat because the blood literally gets shed on that, on that spot. And I spoke to Michael Eaton that I was friendly with and asked him his point of view. And he feels it was in the courts of heaven. So for me, it's a combination of both. The blood gets shed. And what happens to Jesus? Remember, he rises. Who's the first person to, to see him? Mary. What does Jesus say to her? He says, Mary, don't cling to me. Right? I must go to my father and your father. But go and tell the disciples, I've risen. So this is what happens. Jesus, as the sacrificial lamb, he rises, he's conquered sin and death. He ascends immediately to his Father into the throne of heaven to present himself as the sacrificial lamb, as, as, as the sacrifices that has done exactly what it was meant to do, presents himself to the Father. And then he comes down and he spends six weeks as the risen Lord with his disciples. That's, that's, that's the power of the cross. So, so the mercy seat to me is, is like a combination of Calvary and, and, and the throne room of heaven. And, and God had seen the blood. He looked at the blood and his anger was turned away. But Jesus entered into our sin and our lostness. Um, yeah, so we must understand that up to this point, up to the point of the cross, all righteousness was incomplete. There was no complete, perfect righteousness until Jesus. That's why Paul says, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Okay, I've just put you the New Living 
translations says for, for uh, propitiation, sacrifice for sin. The NIV says uh, sacrifice um, of atonement. So the issue here is that every attempt of being righteous falls short. Jesus comes with the full righteousness of God. He lives a righteous life. He lives the holy life. He's tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That's the righteousness of God. He's perfectly righteous. So we have the perfectly righteous one dying in our place, experiencing, experiencing the, con the consequences of sin. Because at that moment on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew experientially what it means to be separated from his Father. So Jesus experientially knew what it was to be a sinner. He wasn't a sinner. You understand? But he knew what it was to be a sinner to be separated from his Father. We don't know how long that moment was. But it was agonizing. And Jesus knew what it is to be forsaken of God. And that's to be a person who doesn't know God. And he experienced that. So as this perfectly righteous one, he dies in our place, and this wonderful righteousness becomes available to us. And that's the miracle, and that's the wonder of, of the gospel. Now we get to the, the justifi justification by grace. So he says in verse 23 and 24, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus has paid the price. He's paid the price for redemption. He's, um, he, you know, in those days you could go uh, to a slave owner and you could pay for a slave to be set free. And it's called a kinsman redeemer. So a kinsman redeemer would go to the slave owner and say, I want that slave, and how much do you want for him? And we'd literally purchase that slave, and we'd be free. This word redemption means exactly that. Redemption means that Jesus is the, um, the redeemer kinsman who's paying the price to set the slaves free. And that's you and me. And these other key words uh, we're going to look at now. Um, so now I want you to see, and Tim Keller says, justification. Now here's another word that's a little, a little difficult to understand. So, so generally speaking, what, is, what does justify mean? Anybody? Just if, if I say, oh, he was really justified in doing that. Anybody want to explain that? Right. He was right. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, his mom gave me such a hiding, but you know what? She was justified. In other words, he deserved it and she did the right thing. So justification means to be, to be right. Obviously, it includes forgiveness. Now listen to this wonderful quote by Marcus Lone. Forgiveness is, you may go, I'm not going to punish you. Right? Now let's just stop there. Start thinking, and, and you can have a look at this as you go forward in the next days. Just listen to Christians talking. Most Christians are thrilled that they're forgiven and they're going to heaven. And you can check it out. I mean, that's where I read it. 
Most Christians are just happy they've got a seat. <laughs> and what Tim Keller and Marcus Lone are saying, it's much, much more than forgiveness. Obviously, it includes forgiveness. But he says, but justification is you may come and you are welcomed in my presence. Sure. Can you see the massive difference? Yes, of course you're forgiven. But in that forgiveness, you are justified. Here's the court case, by the way. Here's the court case. Because here's the judge standing up and saying, no, this guy's he's fine, he's right. Let him go. He's been justified. He's been forgiven. You can go. But now, it's far more when you say, yes, you're forgiven, but you've been accepted, validated, you've been made righteous, you've been accepted into the throne room of heaven. Paul says like in one of the other letters, by whom we have access, by faith, into this grace. Um, now, here's another very, this is, this is critical to Christian theology and to our salvation. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for, for our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And now that you understand what righteousness means, you'll see how, how wonderful the scripture works out. So here's Tim Keller again. He says, on the cross, Jesus was treated as, listen to this, he was treated as if he had done everything we had done. So that when we believe, we are treated as if, we, uh, as, as if we've done nothing. Just look at that again. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he had done everything. In other words, he, he had sinned. He was treated like that. He wasn't that, but he was treated like that. So that when we believe, we are treated as if we've done nothing. That's justification. That's justification. When God looks at you and he says, you find my boy. You are absolutely fine. Because you're good, no. Because you're righteous, no. But because of what Jesus has done for you, and you enter this life by faith through grace. That's, that's the essence of the gospel. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says the reason why he came to Christianity, you know, C.S. Lewis was this really brilliant atheist in Oxford University in England, like several doctorates, and um, incredibly clever, and a total atheist. But listen to what he says. He says, uh, the reason he knew Christianity uh, must be true is when he actually looked um, and, and realized that nobody could ever have made this up. That a God would put his son on the cross, who's perfectly righteous, and die for us. That when we put our faith in him, we are completely accepted, completely validated, and completely justified. He said no man can make that up. It, it's, it's a brilliant statement, isn't it? This is what Richard Hooker says. Such we are in the sight of God, the Father, as is the very, God, the very um, Son of God Himself. That's what you said earlier on. That's why you ran ahead. Brilliant. You're on, on slide number. <laughs> yes.
Well, what, now this is the court case, you see, yeah. and we're going to get into that. So, so we'll, we'll come to it in a minute, but, but what's happening is Paul's saying, yes, you are not guilty because Jesus became the guilty one. So that when you, by faith, accept Jesus, you are declared not guilty. So in the, in the court of heaven, the prosecutor is saying, you're guilty. The wages of sin is death. You're guilty. When you put your faith in Jesus and you stand in the court of heaven, the judge says, not guilty. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. C.S. Lewis, he's, oh yeah, he's, nobody could have dreamt that up. So now we're justified by His grace. Grace simply means God's unmerited favor. It's just total, total favor. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, By grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Wonderful scripture. And that's what this whole gospel is about. It's about the grace of God. And we can access it by faith. And then we come into all the richness of what God has for us. So Romans 3.24 says, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And you, and you heard what I said about redemption. So justification is a free gift. You can't earn it. You cannot earn the judge's favor. You've been declared righteous in Christ. You've declared justified because of Jesus, not because of you. And that's the sheer grace of God. Um, it's unearned. And I want to go to the courtroom drama. Now, I want to ask you, have you ever heard this illustration? And I used it years ago until it was pointed out to me that there was just something wrong with this picture. Okay, so here's the picture. A young guy lands up in court. And let's say he's got to pay um, 500,000 rand fine. And the judge declares him guilty as charged. Now the judge gets off the podium, takes his cloak off. And it's actually the son's father. And the father pays the fine. Now, it sounds a good story, doesn't it? But what's the problem with that story? Because there's a problem with that story. Anybody? Okay. The problem is that it's God himself who's been offended. God as the judge has been offended. And that's what makes this whole transaction so wonderful. Because it's the father, the just judge, who's angry with sin and he's judging sin. But he's both, as Paul said earlier on, the just and the justifier. And so he, as the judge can say not guilty. Why? Because the fine was paid in Jesus. Because as the judge so deeply, deeply offended, sends Jesus as the perfect, the perfect sacrifice for our salvation. And he lets us off and justifies that when we put our faith in him. Because he's the most offended one. So we looked at the floor. So the judge is not the injured party. Um, God's the one, to put it in modern language, he's the one who got mugged. And God, the judge, lets us off the hook. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so in this illustration that preachers have used to try and explain justification and getting us off the hook, it's just a story so that here's a son, we don't know at this point he's the son, and so as the judge, he's got to say to his son, you're guilty. Then he takes off his robe, his judge's robe, he walks off the podium, and now he's a father. And now as a father, he pays the fines. But the problem with that story is that that judge was not offended. So in the story of God, God is the one, as we said at the beginning uh, of this course, God is the one who's been so deeply offended by sin. He's the one who's been mugged, if you can put it that way. And, and, and he's just, and therefore, being, a ju being just, sin must be punished. So what does he do? He punishes it in his son, uh, Isaiah 53. By his stripes we are healed. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And so he received the punishment. He, that's why it's so critical that we know that at that moment when he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he entered into our lostness 100%. Any, anything less, then he never identified with us completely. But you need to know, Jesus became sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this is this wonderful thing that when you come to faith in Jesus, you, you kind of, you want it to say, ah, surely I must do something. And God says, no, it's absolutely free. It's free to you, but it cost me my son. And that's the difference. And therefore, we, we should be the most joyous people on earth. When we know what sin is and what it does and what it's done and how it separated us from God, but that by grace we've been saved, our debt's been cancelled. We are completely okay in his eyes, to put it in simple language. When he looks, he says, my boy, you, you're fine. My girl, you're fine. Now, a lot of Christianity doesn't teach that because they've still got this picture of the father who's out to check you and clap you when you, <laughs> when you do stuff wrong. Does it mean we, we can do what we like because he's a loving father? No, Paul says, no, no, he says, shall we sin that grace may abound? No, we don't do that. Because when you really love God, you know, Augustine, the great, the great African bishop, he said this, he said, love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. That sounds reckless, doesn't it? The fact is, when you love God, you end up pleasing him. And you see, that's not the law. That's the heart. That's what this whole thing is about. It's about the heart. It's about a righteousness that is not earned. It's given to us. As we said earlier on, when God looks at us, it's like he's looking at his son. And we say, no, it can't be. That, that's, that's crazy. That cannot be. Friends, that is the grace and mercy of God. Of course, he sees all our flaws. He sees all the things that are out of, out of line. But he sees what his son did. And I am the righteousness of Christ. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and it had nothing to do with me. And that should free us up. That should cause us to rejoice uh, big time. As we said, God is, the, um, God is the offended one. Now, we spoke at the beginning about righteousness being access. Now, just from a, 
ordinary point of view, what would you love access to? What would you love access to? If, if, if you were given access to something, what would it be? Anybody? You can just think off the top of your head. Um, the White House. <laughs> and would you take over the presidency? <laughs> but it's a great thought. Eh? So I thought to myself, okay, let, let me be very serious now. Let me ask myself, what would I love access to? And I thought of my daughter in England, and I thought, imagine getting an email from Her Majesty's service that says, we are giving you a visa. In fact, not just a visa. This is one of those like very Mark adverts now. Not just a visa, we're going to give you citizenship. And not just citizenship, we'll give you a free rail pass. And not just that, we'll give you a free bus pass. Imagine that. So you say, wow, what, what would I have to do? They say, no, no. You don't have to do anything. But, but why? The queen just felt she wants to extend some grace. <laughs> it might be a silly illustration, but can you see, imagine, in reality, if that was done for me. Get on a plane, walk straight through. I don't have to go through the South African section. I just go through. I've got a British passport. I'm through. I've got access. I've got access to the kingdom, the United Kingdom. And through Christ, we become righteous. Through Christ, we've been validated. We've been given citizenship in heaven, which is absolutely biblical. We've been transferred out of darkness into light. Kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Kingdom of the world into the kingdom of the sun. So that's, that's what I would uh, pretty much enjoy. How do we gain access to the Father? I become righteous. And as we said, that's the miracle of the whole thing. Is that all I have to do is put my faith in Jesus. And everything's done already. The finished work of the cross, the grace of God, it's all done. I simply humble myself, I repent. And I am given, like the prodigal son, the robe, the ring, the shoes. And that is all accessed by faith. So, so Paul says in Romans 3.21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's appeared apart from the law. It's, it's way, way, way above the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the point he's been getting at. And now, from now on, he's going to massage this whole life of faith that you've now come into. Uh, in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. And uh, it's, it's just wonderful stuff. So, God is both the just and the justifier, as we said earlier on. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might, be ju- he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The forbearance means absolute tolerance and patience. And then the wonderful outworking. Um, so when he says there, um, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, there, there wasn't a perfect, a, a perfect solution to righteousness as was going to come in his son Jesus. And when that came, um, that was the real deal. Any questions? Well, I'm 72 now, and I can, the bad news is that we're going to have that battle for the rest of our lives. But you know, that chapter is wonderful, because that's one of the other marking chapters, because it says, now therefore, have a look at 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, now therefore, because he's going to massage this in in a wonderful way. And then he says, chapter 12, now therefore, there is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. You see, legalism, the law condemns you. Jesus sees you as righteous. God sees you as righteous. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. And then that's when he says, don't be, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind. It's a daily walk. It's a daily walk. And you know what? We all slip into legalism. Because it's our human nature. Because we want to perform, we want to look good, and we slip into legalism, both for ourselves and for other people. You know, we judge ourselves and we judge others. And we get into performance mode, and we've got to keep coming back and say, no, I'm a son. I'm justified. God loves me, warts and all. And and that's the thing that frees you up. We're not on a a performance journey. We're on a sonship and a daughtership journey. To me, honestly, to me, I think one of the great keys of, of, of victorious Christian living is an understanding of my sonship. I honestly believe that so much of our victory comes out of our position as being justified, as having the righteousness of Christ that I can't work for. And out of that, I understand my sonship. Yes, I'm forgiven, but far greater than that, I've been welcomed into the Father's presence. I have free access into the throne room. And I, I have this, like this little funny picture in my mind. Imagine if I'm standing in, in, in the courtroom of heaven and somehow Satan's voice comes through and says, what are you doing here? Who gave you the right to be here? And I just say, I'm with him. I'm not here on my own merits. I'm here because of Jesus. Yes.
can do like to do to do something like to produce. And for some people, to produce is just as hard as teaching a law. I mean, there's different levels of things that you have to believe uh, to get to a certain point. So, first of all, you have to believe that God exists. Okay, so there's two things there. There's believing faith and persevering faith. Okay? Believing faith, going back to the first sermon that preached at Pentecost, they didn't have all those things you're talking about. Yes, most of them were Jews. But now Peter preaches the gospel and he includes them in his message. And as they're hearing about the Messiah... It says they were cut to the heart. So who's at work at that point? It's the Holy Spirit. And they said, what must we do? And it was so simple. Repent and believe. So what, we, what you'll see later on in, in, in Romans chapter 10 is that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word. That is why it's so crucial to preach the Word. Yes, there are people who are getting saved without the Word. Because that's that general revelation we're talking about. There are Muslims all over the world getting saved without hearing the gospel. Because God's moving in people's hearts. Many Muslims testify to dream, having a dream about Jesus because they, they, uh, they, they believe in Isa because he's in the Quran. Jesus the prophet is in the Quran. And Muslims are having a dream of Jesus and getting radically saved. But, but who's doing it? It's the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. So you, you may say, I, I, came to, I came to Jesus on the 23rd of December. No, you didn't. God came to you in the Holy Spirit and helped you understand you were lost and you were destined for an eternity of separation. And you cried out and said, save me. That's believing faith. Persevering faith is what we're going to learn in the rest of Romans. It's what Paul says, to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work within you to will and to work for His good pleasure. So yes, there is work for us to do, but we can't work for salvation. But now that we are saved, we work at our salvation. And it's, that's a different thing. You understand? They are the same, the, the same root word. So to believe is to have faith. If you say, I believe in you, you say, I've got faith in you. So it's, it's, in English, it's pretty much the same word. And if you go to the Greek, um, you'll see that, that believe and faith are the same Greek word, pistis. 
And so they're interchangeable. And faith is like trust. It's like the same thing. Yeah. So th those who believe, it means they're putting their faith in. Yes. No, there's only one, there's only one sin that leads to death. Sin is sin. Okay? Sin, sin is self, believing in me. Sin is accepting myself above God. That's exactly what happened to Eve and to Adam. They wanted to be wise. They wanted to be like God because Satan said, you shall be like God. And there's the pride in the heart of man wanting to be like God. At the end of the day, every person, without even knowing it, wants to be God. They want to be in charge of their own lives. And then, of course, they want to be in charge of other people's lives as well. But that's what sin is. Sin is preferring myself to God. So that's the definition of sin. Now, as, as sins, can we grade it? So let's take an example. Let's say I've served the Lord my whole life, right? And now there's a guy who's raped and murdered and he's sitting in prison and someone shares the gospel with him and he repents and he believes. Are we the same? Yes. We're the same. Okay, we don't have, we don't have time to do this, but in terms of inheritance, surely the person who's lived... For 55 years with Jesus, the Bible says there's an inheritance stored up for you. As, as Murdoch preached this morning, there are crowns. We don't know how it's all going to work out. But like my father, my father, got, I led him to the Lord 10 days before he died. I believe you'll be in heaven. But I've served God for nearly 60 years. So, um, yes, we both get to heaven. We are both reconciled to the Father. But surely my inheritance is a bit more weighty than his. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I know it's a lot of mystery involved in that, but the Bible is very clear about our inheritance. No, I, I, I'm asking, referring to your first verse of I feel what John is saying is that I'm a believer, right? I sin. But am I going to die spiritually? No. Well, I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but we can talk about that at some point. I don't believe we can lose our salvation. I believe we can lose our inheritance. And I can show you what the Bible says about that. But how do I become unborn again? If it's only the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit of God that has regenerated my spirit, how do I unregenerate what God has generated? Okay, we can talk sometime about that. So I don't believe I can lose my salvation, but I can lose my inheritance. So now, what he's saying, I believe, what John is saying, is if, if, a, if a person is a sin for death, in other words, 
He's not a believer. And he's not going to repent. He's going to get death. But if I as a believer have sinned, it doesn't mean eternal death. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay, well, we'll chat some more. Yeah. But that's great. You know what? That's the wonderful thing about getting into God's Word because we get a question like that and it forces us to study and to look at it and to get, get revelation. That is how we get built up in, in, in God. Sure. Now, that's, that's John 17, in that wonderful prayer before Jesus goes to the cross. And so, you see, here's the mystery of the Trinity. You can't say, well, now, obviously, you can't say this is Jesus, because he's a person. But before Jesus came to earth, he wasn't a person. So how would you see the Logos and the Spirit and the Father? So what, what Jesus is saying is we are perfectly one, three perfectly in one. I'm in you, and you're in me. And he's actually also showing us what, what happens when we are born again. When we are born again, we've been drawn into the Godhead. We, we are now drawn into fellowship with God. That, to me, is the whole amazing thing about my salvation. Is, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, but I'm not just tagging along, making the best of it. No. I have come into the family. I've been drawn into the, into, the, into the Godhead. And our fellowship, John says, in that same letter, he says, and our fellowship, he says, uh, that which we have seen and heard, that which we have touched and handled, the, the word of life, um, we declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father. And that was there. They said, you know what? We, we've come into the fellowship of the Godhead and that's what we want for you guys, to come home and to experience this fellowship in the Godhead. And then in terms of abiding, living, making our home, once again, it's a day-by-day day thing. It's learning to dialogue with God throughout the day. It's learning to fellowship with the God. Learning to get into the presence of God. And, and, and that's abiding. That's what it means, to live in, to make your home in. We've got to make our home in God. And Jesus promises that when you live in me, you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And that, once again, is the challenge of the, of, of the Christian walk, is that we keep slipping out of the dwelling place, isn't it? And we say, oh, Lord, I've been neglecting you. I've been slacker. You know? and, but it's not a legalism thing. Yeah. It's a hard thing. Says, I mean, Lord, it's like I miss you. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I've been so busy, and, I, and I, I haven't attended to my, my love relationship with you. It's not a legalistic thing. And you say, I'm coming back to the heart of the Father. I'm just coming back to you, Lord. I repent. I just want to refresh you, refresh my mind in you, and, and I want to just come back in. That's the body. We're seeking the presence of God. Does it make sense? Yeah. If I may ask another thing, <laughs> um, just briefly, actually, in the name of the God, uh, uh, David. David. Friend of God is Moses. Moses. So he had such a wonderful relationship. They loved God with all their heart because the, the, what they call the Shema, the great call to worship in Deuteronomy, it said, um, Behold Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And Jesus picked that up in the New Testament. He, he said, that's what you believe, and one more, and love your neighbor as yourself. And why they were seeing as, as a friend of God and having the heart of God is they had a passion for God, and they were serious about obedience. They taught things, they obeyed. Yes, David made some mess-ups, but have a look at Psalm 51. If you, if you want to see David's heart, go and look at Psalm 51, because that's when he's processing that terrible mistake he made with Uriah. Terrible mistake. Go and, go and have a look there. And that's about abiding, by the way. You see, he doesn't just say, oh, Lord, forgive me. He knows God's going to forgive him. He understands that fully. What does he say? Oh, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's intimacy. That's abiding. He says, please don't take your, your spirit from me. That's, that's his heart. He's got a passion for God. And Moses had passion as well. And I mean, passion, such passion, Moses could say, you know what, Lord? You, these are your people. They're not my people. <laughs> so now, I'm, 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 I'm out of this now. I mean, that's friendship, isn't it? I mean, that's very bold. And God didn't clap him for it. God actually listened to him. And he honored him for, for his intercession. Shall we leave it there? Yeah, sure. Okay. So can he get saved? No. I'll tell you why. Okay. Yeah, sure. So Jesus says the only sin that will not be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, for starters, no Christian is guilty of that sin. Okay, so now let me answer you. And, and so, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when you get to a place that you're actually calling light darkness. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus. In, in, in John chapter 8, in that whole big discussion, they are now treading on blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they said to Jesus, you are Beelzebub and you, and you are delivering people by the prince, the prince of demons. Now, you, if you hold that position long enough, you're never going to be forgiven. So now, okay, now here's, this is my thought, and I haven't got a scripture for it, but this is how I understand blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that it will not be forgiven. For me, the way I understand it, is there is a point when God says, I'm drawing a line in the sand. You've blasphemed me the whole of your life. Here's the line. Up to that point, he's given the person all the right in the world to repent. Um, look, I'm just telling you how I see it. And God draws a line and he says, I've given you all the chance in the world. I'm not forgiving you. Yeah, that's what I'm saying.
So now you come and you repent. Can you repent or can you not repent? Is God going to accept you or is he not going to accept you? Is he going to throw you there in, the, in hell? What is going to happen? Well, if you look at it, Um, yeah, yeah, please carry on. So I think we must understand what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. So some people say... At the moment when you say, I am the Holy Spirit, I am equal to the Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I am greater than God. Yeah, but, but uh, you see, I think in, in that kind of case, some people say blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is taking God's name in vain. That's no, it's not that. that. No. It's not that. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, it could be that. But I, I think someone who commits that sin is not going to come back in 10 days. In, in, in. So you, you've basically gone, you, 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 you've gone to a point beyond no return. Well, that's what I mean about the line, because yeah. so only God knows where that line is. He's <coughs> not going to come back and say, God, I repent. That's it. They passed that line. They've gone, they've gone past it. So I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's an issue. I, feel like I might be wrong. Um, I don't think that's a thing where you commit that sin and then you come back. I think when you commit that sin, it's because you, Sorry, you passed that point. You passed that point. And, and you're never going to come back to God. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, no one comes to the Father except the Father draws him. And so, the, 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 my understanding is, and purely it's my understanding, that um, there, there's a line in the sand where God says, I've given you so many years to repent. I've come to you, I've, you've heard the word, and you're still calling light darkness. You're still calling Jesus the prince of demons, whatever. You, you're putting yourself out of, out of reach. Yeah, precisely. We have to take his grace into consideration. And I think you can always keep on praying for that person. Even if it doesn't change the situation, it's going to be good for you to keep on praying. Yeah. <laughs> then in a sense, we are also playing God because then we are giving forgiveness. But in actual sense, only God can, like you said, forgive sin to some extent, you know. So... Totally, totally, totally no forgiveness for him. Mm. 
because you have sinned against my Holy Spirit. Yeah, but what does against that mean? Against my spirit. But what does that mean to sin against the or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I think that's that's what we don't that's we don't put. Actually, I remember, but I can't really put my finger to it. Somebody explained it in this sense that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit tantamounts to rejecting Him, yes. because that's the only thing that will lead people mm. to hell. Mm -hmm. Because God wills that everybody be saved, mm -hmm. and you know, quite everybody to be sent to the pit of hell. So it's our duty to keep on praying. Yeah, we can keep on praying, but it's not for us to decide that. Uh, no, it can't. God like will like for me, it's a bit of a mystery, mm -hmm. and I accept the mystery, and I just know that in God, it's a pretty serious thing mm -hmm. to say. Now you've gone to a place where yes. you can't save yourself because you 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 are absolutely uh, adamant about staying in that place of calling light darkness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's like Lucifer. Because he were in God's presence. And then he said, but I can become greater than God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then God kicked him out of his presence. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I think it's, if we come there, then the person thinks he's greater than like Lucifer. Okay, you think he's greater, but he's out of my presence. Yeah. And you're in your own presence that yeah, it will be. So I think well, can the devil be saved? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I've heard a preacher say he can be saved. But anyway, tell me the story. Right, Shabi? Can we please pray? Because I think we are now not... Let's just pray for peace. No, just a quick one. I mean, the Pharisees knew the truth as well from the Old Testament about the Messiah. But they ignored it, they rejected it. And they kept on rejecting it. Now, if you know the truth, and you keep on rejecting the truth, I don't think there's anybody really that has got an excuse not knowing the truth. Because we're exposed to people tell us about the gospel, tell us about Jesus, etc, etc. So anybody that's been exposed to the truth, but keeps on rejecting it, that is rejecting the Holy Spirit. So in other words, you refuse to be touched by the Holy Spirit. So if you keep on refusing, you are telling yourself, listen, I will not be forgiven, because I am not willing to accept the Holy Spirit, or give over to Jesus, surrender to Jesus. So it's a decision for you not to be forgiven. And God is just giving you what you want. That's God's main thing. He, he doesn't send you to hell. You decide to go to hell yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So in other words, if you make the decision not to accept, that is your choice, basically. God is just giving you what you really want. He's a gentleman. Yeah, uh, that's a really good subject. That, uh, you know, you say your whole life, my will be done. When you stand for God one day, you say as well, your will be done. Devin, would you like to pray for us? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this beautiful night. I uh, thank you that you brought us all together again to learn more about you and to get into a deeper understanding of your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and to receive uh, everything that you want to give to us. Lead us and guide us and through your spirit, God, help us to submit and to be in submission to your spirit so that your will can be done through us. Yes. <coughs> help us to live in such a way that the rest of the world can see that we are children of the living mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. Lord, I pray that you soften all our hearts and help us to just keep on abiding in you, yes. seeking you with all our hearts, minds, mm -hmm. soul, and strength, Lord. I pray a blessing and a favor upon everyone here. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Amen. 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 Thanks so much. 
We hope you enjoyed this message from City on a Hill Church International. For more content and ways to connect, visit www.coah.co.za. Thanks for listening.